Welcome to the Into Security Chats podcast, brought to you by InfoSecurity Magazine, the leading industry magazine and website, and presented by me, InfoSecurity Editorial Director, Eleanor Dalloway. This is the Into Security spin-off podcast that allows me to indulge in deeper meaningfuls with the industry's finest minds. So hi everyone and thanks for joining my final Chats podcast of the year. This new podcast, which I started at the beginning of the year, has fast become one of my favourite parts of my job. Uh, It's been so popular with all of our readers too, which is really lovely to know. My guest today is the quite remarkable Dr Jessica Barker, whose talent is supplemented by the fact that she is one of the loveliest people in the industry. And I can't imagine anyone listening in today who doesn't know who Jess is. But for the sake of formality, let me give a quick overview of Jess's career. So Jess is an award-winning global leader in the human side of cybersecurity. She's co-founder and co-CEO of Sygenta, a cybersecurity awareness company influencing behaviour and culture in organisations around the world. She's delivered cybersecurity awareness training to loads of people in loads of countries. Uh, Jess was also the chair of Club CISO, and I think she's now handed that baton over to Stephen Kahn. Jess is also a big keynote speaker. Um, I still remember her excellent keynote at RSA San Francisco just before the world locked down. And you'll often see Jess appearing on BBC News, Sky, Channel 4, radio. Um, And finally, last year, Jess's book, Confident Cybersecurity, which is amazing, was published and became a number one Amazon bestseller within hours of publication, which is incredible. Jess, I've probably embarrassed you enough. Welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Eleanor. That's really kind. And I'm glad that listeners can't see my blushes, but you're you're very (laughs) kind. I really appreciate it. Oh, let's start with your book, where I finished in your biography. Um, Firstly, I'm a a journalist. I'm so interested in that. When did you first sort of get the idea to write a book and sort of tell us about that process and, and how that all happened? Thanks so much. I've I've always wanted to write a book and having done a PhD, I sort of saw my thesis a bit like a practice run for a book. Sorry to my supervisors <laughs> for saying that, but I really did. I sort of saw it as an opportunity to almost test write a book alongside obviously all the research that goes with it. And I really enjoyed um, that writing side in the way that you you can enjoy writing and it also kind of be somewhat torturous as you're trying to get the words out. So I always wanted to write a, a book and I've had various ideas over the years around a book for cybersecurity, some of which are still bubbling away. But I was approached by a publisher to write Confident Cybersecurity. It's part of a series of, of confident books on different skills, particularly in technology. And it just felt like the perfect fit because a lot of my work is centered on trying to help people feel more confident with cybersecurity. I'm a big believer in the importance of building up empowerment and self-efficacy in other people. And I soon realized there actually wasn't another book really like it on the market. And there's so many people wanting to get into this industry 
there's so many people who want to get up to speed on cybersecurity, be they board members or or people working in other areas of a business, that I just felt like this was such an amazing opportunity to be able to, to really take up. And how long did it take, Jess? Like, how long does a, writing a book of that length take from, from beginning to end? It's all a bit of a blur, if I'm honest. I remember being <laughs> approached by the publishers and it was a short deadline. We had less than a year wow. and I, I sort of said, yep, that'll be fine. I've just got to get this quick back surgery out of the way and then I'll crack on. Um, somewhat underestimated that apparently it's quite hard to write a book when you're recovering from spinal surgery. So that was a bit of a delay. So actually, I, I think I did it in definitely less than six months um and it was very much a case of weekends uh flights working on it on flights because lots of flights were happening at that time it's a while ago um and i do find actually through the night is my best time to work on focused work so i would kind of often wake up really early at like 4 a.m or stay up really late um, and when there were no emails coming in and there was no client work that I had to work on, that's when I can really focus and actually just get a lot of words out and on the page. And then I had a wonderful editor. Um, you know the importance of that, Eleanor, <laughs> and um, a great team at the publishers who who supported me in getting that done. I was going to say that you must have sort of become nocturnal, but I'm guessing your day job didn't stop. So you were more likely just working around the clock, were you? Yeah, that's it. There wasn't much sleep during that period. That's why I say it was all a bit of a blur. Um, <laughs> but it, I really enjoyed doing it. And it, um, it was such a great opportunity to to delve into the other areas of cybersecurity. Obviously, working in awareness, behaviour and culture, I'm always focused on, on the technical side and on the physical side to some extent because I'm translating those messages for people. But this was an opportunity to, to delve into that a bit deeper and to be able to think about the history of cybersecurity, to look at particular vulnerabilities and then using lots of case studies, which again, I do a great deal in my day-to-day job. I really like looking at incidents, what happened and what are the lessons that we can learn from those. And when it went to sort of bestseller and so quickly as well, you must have been so proud. Would you say that that goes down as one of your proudest achievements? It really does. And it was a strange time because the book was supposed to be published in in June of uh, 2020. And because of COVID, it was delayed until September. And then, of course, it was published and still there was so much uncertainty and disruption and obviously couldn't have anything like a physical book launch or those things that you imagine when you're writing a book. So it was very, very different. And that meant um, the, the warm response that it received and the the fact that it's so quickly it was kind of getting sold out in some places um, and so quickly went to number one in a in a few categories on the Amazon bestseller lists felt incredible and I think also is that wider example or evidence of the interest that there is in cybersecurity of the appetite for knowledge and information in this field did you get to celebrate I did. I did definitely have a, a little glass of fizz. Um, 
had to be done. Um, but yeah, it was just different because so much of that celebrating was was smaller than yeah. than I might have anticipated. And with my sort of wider circle, it was kind of done electronically as we have been doing yeah. for the last couple of years, video and social media and messages. We've all had to adapt, haven't we? Yeah, it's such a shame. But you, you mentioned that sort of some of your ideas are still bubbling away, which leads me to ask the inevitable question, will there be a sequel? Uh, do you have another book in you? I'm sure, I hope that, that there will be another. I would like to do something more focused on my day-to-day work, so more focused on the human side, on security awareness, behaviour and culture. That's what I'm thinking about next. There's some fantastic books already on that side of the industry. And so it's it's just thinking about what would my contribution there be and then what is the what is the right time in terms of being able to fit it in. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe a real world celebration for that. <laughs> that <laughs> for would be next. lovely. It's the best season alone to do it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. I'm going to keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> so sort of switching t- topics slightly to sort of your Sargenta side of, of what you do. I'm wondering, do you have any particularly memorable clients or can you tell us a story about an unusual memorable awareness campaign or training that you ran? Yeah, there's so many, to be honest. We are really lucky that we work with incredible clients um, and have a great relationship with our clients. What sticks out to me is actually individuals over the years who have fed back some of the, the impact that particularly awareness raising has made for them. One individual who I will always remember, we were in Canada and presenting... Um, sort of hacking demonstrations and and talking about cybersecurity in general, going through some of those lessons and the threat landscape. Um, and this was for a financial services organization. And afterwards, um, an individual came up and he, he had tears in his eyes because he had been targeted recently with a phishing email that I had used as an example. And it was one that we will all be familiar with in the industry, um, basically the sextortion type phishing email comes in saying, I know your password because you've been looking at pornography. I have, um, and the pornography was infected with malware. I now have access to your systems. I'm going to share a compromising video of you unless you pay me X amount of money. And this was a few years ago when that scam wasn't quite as known as it is now. And so I'd, I'd talked about it. I'd explained how it worked, that the password you know, comes from another breach and the rest of the email is just a lie. Um, and this individual had received one of those emails like a week before. And since getting that email, he'd had sleepless nights. His Him and his wife had both been very worried about it. It had caused upset. He, he was really worried he had been hacked. He was considering paying the money. He just didn't know what to do. He was really in turmoil. And so it really stays in my mind, the relief that he felt in knowing that this was a scam, that he didn't need to worry um, about what was being said in that email. And for him to have that understanding of actually what the cyber criminals were doing, how the scam truly worked, and that it was nowhere near as bad as he thought it was, that stands out for me, knowing that you can actually give people that peace of mind 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's that lovely crossover from when you're doing something in the corporate environment, but actually it also plays into sort of personal lives and, and, and security of people's own more, you know, the more personal elements of their life. I think stories like that, it's, it's those type of attacks that it just give me goosebumps. Like when when people's emotional, psychological factors, when when they're being targeted in that sort of emotional way, it's, it's just devastating, isn't it? It's so true. And I was actually speaking to somebody else about this yesterday. They were walking me through a scam that they had become aware of. And one of the victims of this scam actually has been really impacted psychologically has has felt that they haven't been able to talk to family and friends about it has been suffering with mental health challenges since being made a victim of this of this scam and essentially has felt a great deal of of shame around it as people often do and it's something i think we need to talk about more in this industry the psychological harm that people endure when they've been made a victim of um, social engineering. People can have that misplaced sense of, of shame. People can feel that they have been stupid. Um, people can blame themselves rather than recognizing that they have been a victim, that the attackers a lot of the time are, are professional. They are experienced. They're doing this day in and day out and they're sharing information with one another as to what works. And so people can often be left with really quite damaging experiences and that can really harm people's sense of of self-worth and their relationships going forward. So it can have this really serious knock-on effect in terms of our emotional and mental health when you're made a victim of social engineering like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that really triggers something in me that we should probably look to explore that in in an in-depth feature next year on the magazine because you're absolutely right. I, I remember going to... I think it was the ISC Squared Congress back in Florida. It must have been sort of eight, nine years ago. And there'd recently been a case in the United States where a cyber scam, which was around sex extortion, had actually led to a suicide um, because of that great feeling of just shame and being unable to cope with the embarrassment, the humiliation. And that was, you know, many years ago. But mm. there seems to be this rapid increase of the emotional scams at the moment whether that's extortion or whether it's the dating scams that we seem to be hearing about and and more recently it's it's awful it is and I think perhaps it's perhaps it's in the context of the pandemic as well more people you know at home more isolated we're using technology more as a tool in our relationships you know more than we were um so there's potentially more scope, I think, for these attacks to be carried out. And the impact can be really, really devastating for people. And the way that we can help overcome that is by talking about it more and is by reducing some of that stigma. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. And so switching gears again slightly, um, you've obviously built this profile for yourself, Jess. I I spoke in your introduction about all of the sort of TV interviews you've done, the, the keynotes, the the conference conferences through those speaking arrangements and and becoming a well-known name in the industry how has that impacted your business and your your day job do you think that increased visibility over you as a person has has been a blessing 
I think so. I think it's, I don't think you necessarily have to have that to have a successful business or to be successful in, in this industry. But I think it certainly helps if people know, know you to some extent, if they know your perspective, um, if they know where you're coming from with your work, if they're able to understand your approach. And, and I think, it, you know, it certainly gives visibility. So it's certainly something that has been largely a positive for for me and for Sygenta. Um, it's something that can be challenging as well, obviously, um, and it because it, with more publicity, with people knowing you more, you are more likely to be face to face criticism, um, mm-hmm. to have people who are going to try and undermine you. But that kind of comes with the territory. And I would say the vast majority of my experience has been positive. I've been very lucky with that and and very lucky that it's been positive for my career overall. And I referred to that um, keynote you delivered at RSA, San Francisco, February 2020. Do those occasions still make you really nervous or have you just have you just gotten so used to it that it's, it's no big deal these days? definitely less nervous than I used to be and that's to be honest that was the big driving force in doing more and more I'm the kind of person that likes to push out of my comfort zone a bit I believe that doing that within reason I'm not talking about a big (laughs) leap out of your comfort zone but gradually pushing your comfort zone is a way to grow in my experience that's proven true for me and so that's the big driver for me in my life in my career is to always push my comfort zone just a bit to help me um, have new experiences to grow in confidence um, and to kind of grow in what I'm able to deliver so when I first started giving conference presentations if I'm you know going back kind of seven or eight years I would be incredibly nervous Um, going back a few years before that doing my PhD I would be leading seminars of kind of 10 people and be incredibly nervous (laughs) I've now got to the point where I don't have sleepless nights for like the months (laughs) before or something like that um, I've definitely the more I've done it the more I've started to to feel much more at ease with it and enjoy it you get to the point where you realize you no longer fear it so much and you actually enjoy it and that's a weird moment <laughs> but but still I'll always have some nerves and I think that's good because yeah. it's a sign that I care about it it means that I will I will always prepare as much as possible that's the the big um big important factor for me is knowing that I am prepared as much as I can be and feeling very confident in what I'm saying feeling that I I know my message and I'm very um keen to be sharing it if all of those factors are in place then the confidence now outweighs the anxiety and the nervousness but there'll (laughs) there'll always be some of that there (laughs) Oh, that's really good progress, though. (laughs) Yeah, getting there. Definitely making progress. (laughs) What do you think is the biggest mistake that organisations make when it comes to cybersecurity awareness and education? You do a lot around uh, best practice, of course, and a lot of what you do is encouraging people to do it right. But um, I'm interested to know what you think is the wrong way of doing it. Like, Can you give us a few examples of just disastrous attempts by organisations? 
Yeah, the theme I would say in in doing it wrong is focusing on on tick box. And I still see this all the time. I, I understand it. Organizations that particularly when they have regulatory requirements, they want to tick that box to say, yes, we have done our awareness raising for the year. Yes, we have communicated our policies. And if people just focus or organizations just focus on that, what you always end up with is awareness raising that is dry that is not engaging that people look to just click through dodge get around you know get through as quickly as they can and then what you end up testing is just people's ability to to have patience with dry material and people's ability to have sort of short-term memory and be able to just kind of click through uh, and get through a, a test so that's the biggest mistake I find. And, and when you have that, you can just see people switched off. You can see people uh, are not paying attention. They're absolutely not taking on board the messaging, let alone retaining it. And for me, it just feels like such a wasted opportunity because there is so much interesting stuff going on with cybersecurity. We have so many um, case studies we can draw upon. We have so much that we can share in terms of live demos of attacks, in terms of, you know, war stories going through incidents, um, and in terms of making it relevant, as you said earlier, to yeah. people's personal lives. So I think it's just, it's a shame when organizations bore people to tears with cybersecurity, <laughs> when actually we can make it fun. As you were talking then, actually, I realized that, you know, tick box security or tick box compliance, like you, like you gave in your answer, can actually be applied to most parts of the industry as worst practice, not just awareness and training. Mm -hmm. So true. So true. And it's difficult, isn't it? Because regulation is important. You know, people, um, organizations need to, to make sure they pay attention to their requirements. They need to fulfill them. But if that's the driver, it so yeah. often leads to actually bad practice and leads to a more insecure organization. Yeah, exactly. It's more about it being a byproduct of rather than the motivation for or the driver. Mm -hmm. right? Absolutely. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. I'm going to move into the next section of the podcast, which is just really random, silly, quick fire questions. <laughs> um, so I ask every one of my guests to give a a tasting note for the podcast so a suggested drink and a suggested snack which you'd like our listeners to enjoy whilst listening to this interview well my drink has got to be a cup of tea um <laughs> because, so yeah it's got to be a cup of tea and I've got to say it really should be Yorkshire tea um I actually in confidence cyber security if you look um at the start of the book I actually acknowledge Yorkshire tea um <laughs> for helping me get through the writing process um tea tea gets me through life so absolutely a cup of tea and going with that cup of tea it must be a biscuit um for the American listeners a cookie I would say if you're in the UK, just to keep the theme of Yorkshire, which will make my parents very happy, Yorkshire, <laughs> Yorkshire gingerbread um, from Betty's Tea Room, if I can plug them, then <laughs> that would be that would be my ideal tasting note for everybody. Betty's Tea Room is so adorable, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> my favourite. <laughs> it's definitely a rite of passage as a Brit that you have to go there for a couple oh, of tea. Yeah. 
a biscuit or slice of cake. <laughs> Absolutely, yep. <laughs> um, so what's been your favourite ever holiday, Jess? Let's get an idea of who you are by sort of knowing what types of holidays you love. Oh, there are so many I could pick. Had some wonderful holidays with my family. But the one that really jumped to mind when you asked that question was my honeymoon. Um, so when FC and I got married, we got married in Nevada in the United States. Really? We did. We got married in the Valley of Fire. Not Vegas. <laughs> Not Vegas. Very close to Vegas. <laughs> Oh, but no, we, we drove out to the desert and we got married in the Valley of Fire and it was very beautiful. Did some rock climbing in high heels, not recommended. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> but it was fun. Um and then um and then we went on a, a road trip across the US. So we went through Death Valley. We went up to California near Santa Cruz. We went to San Francisco. We went down to L.A. Um, yeah, we traveled sort of a lot around the, the U.S. and saw some really beautiful places, ate a lot of amazing food. And I just I love a road trip. Yeah, me too. That sounds incredible. How long were you sort of traveling for around the state? In total, five weeks. Nice. But people who know us, I don't think this will surprise you, Eleanor. We actually ended the trip with some work. <laughs> <laughs> of course, on your honeymoon. Yep, of course. So we, we had an amazing honeymoon. And then we ended up delivering some uh, some awareness sessions for a client <laughs> in Canada, actually. And then we went we went back down to New Orleans and um, and I spoke at the IOC, IOC Squared Congress, actually, um, oh, that cool. year. So that was amazing. Oh, my goodness. And I love how you refer to him as FC as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Presumably you don't do that over dinner. <laughs> I really do. Yeah, I know. Oh, I really do. do. Yeah, absolutely. His family do as well. So do mine. That's um, oh, that's given you a little window as well into yeah, our lives. <laughs> Um, Jess, what do you think is the sort of most common misconception about you? What do people think that just isn't true? Oh, good question. I have no idea, actually. You'd have to ask other people, I suppose. Um, a lot of people, uh, this is one, a lot of people think I'm a psychologist and I'm actually yeah. a sociologist by training. Okay. I, I do draw on on psychology, on neuroscience, on all sorts of other disciplines, including sociology. But yeah, my background is in sociology, not psychology. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, couple more. What do you want for Christmas? What do I want for Christmas? All I all I could come up with when my husband asked me was socks. <laughs> what? So yeah. <laughs> So I know he's got me more than socks, but I don't know what. Um, and that's what I'm telling everyone. That's what I told my parents as well. I was like, oh, I really need some new socks. Um, so, you are so low maintenance. <laughs> I just feel like I sort of have everything that, that you know, that I, I need. So I'm finding it hard to think. Um, some goodies <laughs> from Betty's. Would, speaking of Betty's Tea Room, they would go down well. Um but I'm sure like lots of people this year, it's um, I'm really excited about the fact that we can see my parents. They're coming to spend Christmas with us, which we didn't have last year. So kind of more focused on on that really than than anything else. 
Nice. There's probably loads of men listening to this podcast right now thinking, oh, I wish my wife had just asked for socks. <laughs> you know, though, if, oh, he, yes. <laughs> if he just got me socks, then I might be a little, I might raise an eyebrow. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, what's your favourite Christmas song, Jess? Oh, my favourite Christmas song. Um, I'm actually a big fan of um, I Want a Hippopotamus for Christmas. <laughs> What? Yeah. So people either love it or hate it. So see what you think to that. Never heard of this. Oh, it's become quite an anthem in our household, and I actually have a hippopotamus Christmas T-shirt, <laughs> hippopotamus bath bombs. Yeah, hippopotamus has become the Christmas animal in our house. So of course, yes, yes, yeah. That's that's the that's the big one for us. I also really like. Um, is it a spaceman came traveling? Yes. Yeah. That's from my childhood, and that's that's a beautiful song as well. Okay. Well, I'm going to check out the hippopotamus song. It sounds like something my children would adore, and it might stop them from playing that limbing mince pie song that Alexa churns out ten times a day. Well, you may be cursing me when it's um, I, all I want a hippopotamus for Christmas being churned out ten times a day. See how you get on with it, and let me I know. May test it before I introduce it to them, I think that's yeah. a good idea. And the last question is the tough one, which is the desert island question. So if you were stuck on a desert island for one year and you could only take one song to listen to, one book and one luxury item, what would you choose? Oh, so the I'm going to go backwards because I know the luxury item that okay. immediately came into my head and that would be a pillow. OK, good. Yeah, I'm very festival. Yeah, very fussy about pillows. So I would definitely have a pillow. The book would be To Kill a Mockingbird. That's my favourite book and has been since I first read it. I was about 12. The song is much, much trickier. Um, But as I'm feeling nostalgic, I think I would... mm, I think I'd go for Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits. Oh, my goodness. So... (laughs) Romeo and Juliet by Dire Straits is my top three songs of all time and yeah and To Kill a Mockingbird is my absolute favorite book too so you and I have a lot in common it's again like you I think I probably started studying at school when I was 12 or 13 but it really is what inspired me to love literature and went on to sort of do an English degree and then of course became a journalist so I really do accredit to Kill a Mockingbird as one of the reasons why I've kind of taken the path that I have. So, oh, I, yeah, I love those answers. I love that. We need to know your luxury item. Have you shared that before? Oh, I, ha- oh, I haven't. I haven't. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, I would, I'm, I'm not a light packer, so I would. <laughs> yes, I can <laughs> I relate. I really struggle with this one. I think some kind of lip balm because I'm a bit obsessive about lip balm. Mm-hmm. Um, and also in the heat, you'd get very dry, wouldn't you? Dry lips. So. True. I did. I did think about sun cream again. Very yes. But that's is that luxury or is that a necessity? <laughs> I would argue that that's probably a, a necessity. Uh, <laughs> we've had some really interesting answers. Graham clearly wanted to send off some kind of firework distress flare because he said it, he'd be so 
absolutely outraged by the idea of spending an hour, a whole year on a tropical island that you're <laughs> desperate to leave. <laughs> oh, I think it sounds amazing. Oh, Me too. <laughs> Me too. He was very grumpy about the whole situation. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like Graham. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Jess. I, I suppose I better wrap up. But thank you so much for being on the pod today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, and all that's left to say is a huge thank you to the chats listeners and a very Merry Christmas to everyone. I'll be back in the new year. So until then, Merry Christmas, everyone, and have a really good one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Into Security Chats. I've been Eleanor Dalloway, and it has been a pleasure to have you listening in. Join the conversation next month as I get to know my next guest.